G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, where we're back for our monthly episode for the month of August. Dave, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, Rob. In fact, I've just uh, sat down over dinner, finished that, and I watched the last two episodes of The Time Monster whilst I was cooking and eating. Oh, lovely, lovely. I've, um, I was watching something too. I was watching episode, was it six or seven? Oh, I can't remember now, of Defenders. I have no idea what that is. Ah, it's on Netflix. It's Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, and Daredevil all sort of teamed up. Uh, okay, does it work? <laughs> it does, actually, because what they've done, instead of doing a, a 10 or a 12-part series, which is normal, I think 12 is normal for the individual characters, this is only eight parts, because I guess they figure we already know the characters, so the first episode sort of warms us up, second episode gets into it, and by episodes three, four, five, it, the story's just zinging, and you know it's going to end by episode eight, and it's like, this is really tight writing, this is really good. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Does it have any clever Atlantean philosophy in it, though? Ooh, no. Or no. men in turkey wings flapping about a set? No, no, nothing like the Time Monster, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... <laughs> You know, well, look, there's a, there's another episode or two to go. You never know. Anything could happen. It's possible. Maybe Kratos <laughs> does make a cameo. <laughs> Maybe. Fingers crossed. Dave, I think we've got a huge episode coming up, just looking at our notes. We've got a lot of things to cover, which is interesting, because a week ago, we were sitting there scratching our head going, is there any, is there any news? Maybe we could mention this, I guess. <laughs> yeah, can we scrape something off the bottom of the barrel? <laughs> But as it turns out, quite a lot's been happening. So we've got a bit to talk about there, things going on. And of course, our main topic, which is looking at Doctor Who stories that, you know, you didn't like as a child or you didn't get as a child, but which work for you as an adult. Indeed. And we got so many responses to that in the first week we put out the call. I've not even put out the call for the past three weeks because we already had so many replies. It was a really good... It seems to be a topic that people have really engaged with. And I suspect that's in part because... Everybody always talks in sort of semi-embarrassed terms about how, you know, really we know deep down that Doctor Who is meant to be a kid show or we say a family show. Mm. But when there's stories that actually work far better for you as an adult, maybe that kind of says that there's more to this show than just being a kid show. I think so. I think so. I think we see all sorts of things in episodes as we go through our lives. But we're probably jumping ahead if we, we, are. <laughs> if we, we get are. down that rabbit hole. News. There is so much news about at the moment. And it's all come out in the last week. Rob, I think you've got the first piece. I do. And this is something that is still unconfirmed, and it's that Jodie Whittaker's companion will be a 57-year-old bloke who's been on Coronation Street and is apparently a British quiz show host um, <laughs> called Bradley Walsh. And again, not confirmed, but Dave, your initial take on this. Okay, so my literal initial take when I rocked up into the office and checked the Twitter feed and saw this was, what the bloody hell are they thinking? <laughs> and why did you think that? And let me explain. That was my first take and my, my more measured take is not that. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But my initial take was very much because we, we said when they cast Jodie Whittaker that this was a roll of the dice. Not mm. that this was a bad thing or a good thing, but it was a roll of the dice that could be phenomenally awesome it could be absolutely terrible. We don't know, but wow, they're taking a chance. Yeah. To then change the dynamic of the show again by having the companion, assuming that this is the regular every episode travels with the Doctor companion, which, as I say, we don't know. But to change that further by going from a, a young female to 
a middle-aged to older man is another real shake-up of the dynamic. I thought, wow, that's that's a lot of shake-ups of the dynamic in one go. That's a lot of rolls of the dice in one gamble. And mm. is, is it wise to do that? You know, should, should the audience have a little bit of familiarity going around? Now, as I, you know, calmed down and my initial reaction went down, I thought, well, you know, <laughs> I have no idea how they're going to use this. I don't know if it's true. When they say he's a companion, does that mean he's like Danny was, where he sort of appears in a couple of episodes here and there? Or does he go in the TARDIS? Does he not go in the TARDIS? Or is he the companion in the sense that we've come to expect that? We don't know. We don't even know if it's true. But again... I assume that Chibnall would have a plan, and I assume that that plan is grounded on some, you know, basis. So it, it, it could well work. But I, I'm going to be honest; my first reaction was one of shock. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, at 57, that's two years older than Capaldi was when he became the Doctor. It's not young. <laughs> no, this isn't Harry Sullivan. No. No, not at all. And I mean, my initial reaction was that I have no real read on this guy because even when I look into his background, he only did a couple of years on Corrie, which everyone seems to cite. Oh, yeah, he's from Corrie. But he was only on it for a couple of years, apparently. And I don't watch Corrie myself. It's not like he's some major veteran off it that we somehow know through, you know, the osmosis of the British television industry or something. Um, He seems to be a bit of a journeyman, like a bit of theatre here, a bit of telly there. He hosts some quiz shows or something over there. You know, I've, I've got no real read on him, although I believe he has been in the Sarah Jane Adventures, um, which isn't a series that I ever watched. <gasps> Shock horror. So I, I didn't pick that. Yeah, you're right. He has been in the Sarah Jane Adventures. I, I have seen some episodes, but I haven't watched it right the way through, and I'm pretty sure I haven't seen the episodes with him in it. Uh, he was in an episode of Law & Order UK. Again, I've dropped in and out of that series now and then, but I don't think I've seen his episode. So like Jodie Whittaker, I can't judge this person i can't say oh i get why he would do this or i think he's a good actor in other stuff or i think he's a poor actor in other stuff Mm. it's another blank slate yeah it's funny when when i read this story initially i thought oh now i know how dave felt when jody whittaker got (laughs) got picked because yeah I, i feel the same now about this guy but you know what my other reaction and i've heard mark on progda who suggests this as well so i know this isn't an original thought but i had it independently of him i do confess is that people might look at him as the doctor you know, that's natural. He's an older guy, and at least half the Doctors have been cut from that sort of sailcloth. But I wonder if that's going to extend into the stories themselves and maybe become a plot thing. Like, they walk into a room and people defer to the man. And this could play out in any number of ways. I've been thinking about it. You know, Jodie might get annoyed that she's not the centre of attention. That would be a very Doctorish thing to do. Jodie could be bemused that they're talking to him about stuff and maybe stuff he's got no idea about then she has to step in and you know show her superior knowledge and surprise them you know could this become a plot point I think gender will be part of at least some of her stories you know do you think those things might pop into Doctor Who it's certainly a perfectly reasonable theory I I tend to still maintain the view that if we're going to have a woman as the Doctor, and fair enough, we we are, I don't want it to be about that. I don't want it to be a lesson. But could it be? That's the thing I'm, I'm wondering. Because it's, it's just a bold move in general, like we're saying. And it could have the potential taking away the Doctor's agency, um, which could be really interesting on some levels, but it could also cop a ton of criticism. Like, oh, look, you've cast the first female Doctor, and now she's getting usurped by the companion. You know, Chibbers, what are you doing? Yeah, or it could be a wonderful Holmes-Watson-style relationship that works really, really well. 
could be. I mean, it brings to mind how a lot of people loved um, Evelyn Smythe in the Big Finish Adventure. She was an older woman with the Sixth Doctor. There are similarities. I guess there are differences too, but, you know, it, it made me think of that as well. Oh, well, well, my mind also went to Steed and Emma Peel from The Avengers, and I don't think you'd ever say that Emma Peel was uh, second fiddle to Steed. No, very true. Mm, maybe that's on Chipper's mind. Yeah, so that dynamic could work very well. So so this is what I'm saying. We, we can envisage and conjure into our minds all sorts of possible dynamics. We don't even know how many episodes this guy's in. Frankly, we don't even know for sure he's been cast. No, exactly right. And we, we've got to really stress that to people listening. You know, by the time this episode goes out in a few days' time, maybe it's all come out in the wash and he's not in the show. Or maybe he is. Who knows? No. But in our next piece of news, we have something that's a little bit more concrete. Mm. And this has been around for a little while, and it's a new version of Sharda coming out, following in the footsteps, I understand, of the Power of the Daleks DVD. Yes. Now, will I jump in here, or have you got something more to say about it? Well, I don't know that there's much more to say, because apart from telling us that it is happening and that some of the original cast are back, we don't know a lot more. Mm. My reaction is... (sighs) (laughs) boring i mean so many people have said it already again this isn't an original thought but there's a ton of sharder versions out there it's not needed at all let alone in an environment when there are far more interesting stories that haven't been done at all you know i guess the markability of tom baker is being considered and they're like oh that that, that's that's a sure bet we'll put tom baker on the front cover but you know gosh i'd much rather something like marco polo or something unless they know marco polo is coming back well, that, that, that could be a nice rumour. Look, I'm kind of the same as you. I know some people don't much like the 1994 VHS version that was then re-released on DVD, but to me, that's as good as we're ever going to get and as good as we need. Everything that is actual real footage yeah. is on that release. Exactly. And everything else is always going to be fabricated in some way. Exactly. I mean, you know, you can listen to the Big Finish 8th Doctor version of it. If, if you're so inclined. Um, well, if you, if you hate yourself, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know. I mean, well, Dave, I, I collect the eighth Doctor Big Finish stories. I've not bought that one. <laughs> yeah, look, I, as I say, I like the VHS version, but what, what we don't even know at this stage is how it's going to be done. Are they going to take the existing footage and cut it in with animation, or are they going to animate it all from the start? Are they going to use the music from the VHS version? Or is somebody going to be commissioned to do a whole new original score and sound effects for it? Because, you know, don't forget, the original footage had no score or sound effects. It was just raw mm. first recording footage. Yeah, my gut feeling was, oh, they're doing this on the cheap, so they're just going to fill in the missing scenes, and that's cheaper than doing something from scratch. That maybe still is my opinion, but maybe it would be interesting, at least on an intellectual level, to see the whole thing done from scratch? Look, I will look at it when it comes out, but I am not excited. No, no, I'm not at all. I mean, that yawn and saying boring is, is quite is quite how I feel. I'm, I'm, I'm nonplussed about it. Fair enough. What else has been happening? Oh, gosh, Jodie Whittaker's been getting around, and a lot of people have been commenting on her as well. Um, in fact, Doctor Who magazine that comes out today has commentary from both Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis in it. And Stephen Moffat, I have a quote here, he says, her very first performance as the Doctor is in the can, 
And here's the thing, the rushes were sent to me. The new doctor in action for the very first time. Oh, the temptation. But I steeled myself. Not my doctor, not my show anymore. Strictly Chris's business. It was time to be an industry professional, respectful of his colleagues, not a drooling fanboy. Never in all my years has me self-discipline been so tested. Moral superiority confirmed. Moffat added, she was great, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm glad that Moffat's self-assuredness is intact. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was a nice little story. Um, Look, it, it, it is, but let's face it, though, I, I have a very special place in hell for all pre-release interviews, whether it's a TV show, a movie, all of those, yeah, we filmed this and it felt really good and we all got on great on set and, <laughs> we, you know, we were making magic and it was wonderful and the way the director worked, it was so... Come on. Yeah, and you learn 10 years later they all hated each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, Russell T. Davis, in the same issue, talking about the casting of a female doctor, said, I simply didn't think of it. We did a very, very good job in 2005, but it was a different world back then. What Chris Chibnall is brilliantly doing is making me and Stephen Moffat look old-fashioned. We look like the past, and that's exactly what we are. We are the past. I don't know Jodie, but whenever I've seen her interviewed on Breakfast TV or whatever, she's been really funny and vivid, not just spouting PR lines. And that's rare. That excited me. Someone who's got an incredibly strong self is going to fit the Doctor perfectly. Uh, very, Again, very nice sentiments from RTD. and he, he, I'm sure they're very genuine, but <laughs> what else is he going to say? <laughs> true, true. But here, here are some sentiments from me because Jody's also done the rounds on quite a few radio interviews in particular. And that enthusiasm, which ties back to what Russell's talking about, is, is exactly what I had seen. Even before I'd read that quote from Russell, this is what I was already thinking. It seems that she's really wanted this. She's really excited. She comes across a bit different to, say, a tenant or a Capaldi because she's not fanish. She doesn't come across as like, oh, I was a massive, massive fan. But she certainly knows what the show is and knows how important it is and you know 30 odd years ago or 40 odd years ago tom baker was joking about a woman doctor it's only in the last five years or so it's even seemed possible so she hasn't grown up desiring this role like a tenant might have but now that she can have it i think she's really really into it and and that just comes across in everything she says just seeing her talking about it has got me really excited and energized about her coming in you know even more so than a month ago yeah, look, I, I do understand what you're saying, and I, I do in part agree. And if I park my cynicism to one side, and I can do that. Um, really? <laughs> what I've taken away from these interviews particularly has been very similar to what you've said, and that is that Jodie Whittaker is not approaching this because she loves the fiction of the show and she wants to play the character in the fictional sense. She's doing this as a successful actress who's going this part as an acting part, this character as a piece of script is a wonderful challenge and something that she wants to do as an actress to stretch herself and to actually inhabit and, and, and get away from. So she, she, unlike, as you say, Tennant or Capaldi, who kind of just want to take over a character they know, wants to have the fun and the experience of finding a character and becoming a character in the way that she would any other job. Mm. And I find that approach really, really interesting. Yeah, was there an interview, you might be thinking of the same interview as me, where she's like, you know, one week we might be in the past, next week we're in the future, one week we're doing this, the next week we're doing that. And as an actor, that does really stretch you. Yeah, I think that is one of the ones I, I, I read the coverage of. And that, you know, is, is a really wonderful thing because you get 
some actors these days who are of that more old school that I think Jodie's going to be of, or Jodie is of, that really do look for the old-fashioned RSC inhabitation of the part, that really acting thing, as mm. opposed to the more sort of perhaps modern TV, dare I say celebrity style of acting, where you, you, you superficial is the wrong word, but you sort of skate through a part. Yeah, yeah, I know where you're coming from. So yeah, look, it's really good, and I, I'm, you know, uh, my cynicism comes more than anything from the fact that we have got this massive gap between announcement and her first proper episode. Yeah, and it's it's very hard to look at that gap and maintain excitement because so much of what happens now is going to be artificially filled by PR teams, and that that does annoy me, and that does sort of get my cynicism working a bit. Yeah, it's not even like they can drip feed this stuff because they're not even filming until, what, January or February next year or something. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. So I, I, I do resent being manipulated by PR teams and that does get my go to bit, but I guess that's all we got. And uh, as I say, when you look past it and actually look at the genuine Jodie Whittaker, it's very positive. It really is. Yeah, no, she's she's growing more and more on me. It's, it's, it's really good. What else have we got? Well, more and more is becoming known about the Christmas episode. So mm. the rumours about Jenna Coleman coming back are getting louder, but they're still not confirmed. So I think we'll we'll park that until we have a confirmation one way or the other. Yeah. But we have had confirmed that, as well as the First Doctor and Polly, Ben will be appearing. And they've cast the actor Jared Garfield. Mm, not, a, not a name I know, but the picture of him looks pretty good. Well, the picture does look very good, and his smile is very uh, Ben Jackson. I actually quite like the casting of this. The guy was in 124 episodes of Hollyoaks. Wow. So, you know, you, you, you don't last 124 episodes in a soap unless it's working. So he must be a reasonably talented actor. Uh, his character, spoilers for anybody who, I don't know how long ago this happened, but his character does fall out a window during an argument and died, so he's looking for more work. <laughs> Uh, but that, that's that's kind of it. I think he was, you know, he's got a couple of little bit parts, but he was discovered by Hollyoaks. He's been there for a while, and now he's looking for something else. He he looks a lot like the part. Yeah, yeah, no, that, it's very exciting because Ben and Polly are actually a a pair of companions I really quite like. Polly is my favourite '60s companion. Oh wow, yeah, female companion at least. I could probably pull out a male companion as well from that decade but yeah look i'm i'm very excited about this you know as soon as i saw polly i thought oh they're gonna have ben as well and now we can actually see him it's it's kind of good yeah i I still have a part of me i confess that's a little bit worried about to what if any extent stephen moffat will rewrite history and rewrite the 10th planet and and that whole stuff i mean this is the guy that you know as we know turned the brigadier into a cyberman and Mm inserted Clara into every piece of history and reset the Doctor's regenerations even though technically he still had two left and made the Daleks say exterminate so they could recharge their guns, you know. If he hadn't done mm. all that, I would be looking at this very, very well. That that sort of stamping of Moffatism over the history of the show isn't something I've liked about his era. Uh, there's a lot I have liked about his era, but that's something I really haven't liked. And that leaves me just a little bit wary of how he's going to deal with such an important part of history. 
Do you worry when you see in the trailer stuff like the first Doctor leaping onto that chain and disappearing through the floor or whatever they're doing? It, it looks like a very, very active thing to be doing, not something that Hartnell would have been doing at any time, let alone in his last story. Uh, look, no, because I try not to judge things by trailers. Mm. Um, so I, I guess I'm probably being equally unfair by judging things based on Moffat's previous ideas. But I'm only human. <laughs> But if you, uh, but let, let me say, if you're going to go down the path of doing an interaction or doing a two-doctor story with the first and the twelfth, having been employed there is very natural, and this guy looks like the perfect person to play him. So, yeah, bring it on. I look forward to being impressed. Very true. And I know we're not going to say anything or much about Jenna at least, but she's probably going to be a necessary evil to pop up in like an Amy Pond sort of way in the regeneration scene. It's just interesting, though, as everyone sort of hears this rumour, just to see how many people are totally off her and are just like rolling their eyes like oh great clara you know i thought i thought there was some backlash about her in while she was on the show but now it seems a lot more people think she's overstayed a welcome and are just not interested in seeing her back i think part of it comes from the fact that many many fans loved bill really mm. loved bill and the idea of her having to sort of give up the spotlight for someone else i think does you know great a little bit but and, and and this happened as well when amy came back for you know 30 seconds during the smith regeneration and people said hang on this is this is clara's show now mm. all, all you're doing by putting amy back here is diminishing clara and i don't think people want to see bill diminished yeah well i i think from what i can read bill will get the lion's share it'll be bill ben and polly for most of the adventure and it, and it probably will just be jenna popping in at the end in much the same way but yeah i know what you mean it does take away to some degree yeah that, that that's my feeling but again we'll see how it's done the question is too if she comes back does that mean she's going to have that game of thrones person in tow with her and the diner tardis and all that oh. <laughs> or is she just going to be a figment of his imagination oh rob <laughs> let's move on <laughs> yeah um, You've got one more piece of news, I believe. I do, I do. Red, White and Who, the story of Doctor Who in America. This is a book that came out earlier this week by uh, Stephen Warren Hill and a cast of thousands. Well, no, probably, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, about five other main authors. And this tells the story of Doctor Who in America, as the title suggests, when it was aired, what people thought of it, reviews, um, fandom, the organised fan events that were going on. We were lucky enough to get a, uh, a review copy, not of the full book, Dave, but of um, several of the chapters. And just looking at it, I think this is going to become the Bible for the topic of Doctor Who in the US. It's that comprehensive. It's about 700 odd pages. It's huge. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating work because the history of Who in America is so fundamentally different to that in many of the other main countries in which it was shown. I mean, although Australia had a bigger repeat culture than the UK, we had a very similar experience of it came out at about the same time. It was on the government-run network. It was broadcast in a similar sort of tone and feel mm -hmm. because our medias in these Commonwealth countries are very similar. But the television media in the United States is so fundamentally different to these it's completely disparate uh, public broadcasting is a totally different concept there to what the abc or the bbc are and doctor who really was it had a really difficult birth in america 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, America is such a huge place and only going out on public broadcasting stations and so on. It's it's going to be quite the story to read. I've obviously read these chapters that we've got, but the whole book itself, I think, will be amazing, particularly for fans in America. But even for me here, I was very interested as a non-American fan in reading how it all went down over there. So um, I think it could be a very good book. It's it's not cheap, though. It's forty nine ninety five because it is such a huge book, you know, 700-odd pages, 600-odd images and so on in it. And Dave, I'm just wondering if something like this on the Australian experience wouldn't be a good thing to do. I mean, you've got a lot of information sitting out there in people's heads, like uh, I'm thinking of Anthony Howe and Dallas Jones, particularly for the 70s and 80s experience, but also a lot of other folk. I mean, you've, you've been involved with conventions yourself and guests coming out. Loads of people could contribute to something, but mm, do we have a big enough market to sell a book like this? Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch how the Red, White and Who does sell. I'm really looking forward to reading about the convention stuff in the 80s because Richard Marsden's J&T biography kind of delves into that a little bit, just the periphery of some of the fan politics that was going on there. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about that. Yeah, and that certainly is covered um, in the book. So check it out, atbpublishing.com if you want more information. Great. So a couple of little topics we wanted to mention before we get to our main one, as is our style. And I'm going to ask for your indulgence for a moment here, Rob. Ooh, okay. I'll sit back. Because the 29th of August is the 30th anniversary of the first ever Doctor Who Club meeting that I went to. Ah, bless. (laughs) And it did get me thinking because... So I was seven at the time and my my dad, who was also a fan and looking for somewhere... Seven. I, well, Seven. You know, you know I wasn't, wasn't, Seven. A particularly, wasn't a particularly sporting lad or anything. And Sorry, I've been watching Colin Baker episodes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, my dad wanted something he could take me along to that we could both sort of share as an interest. And we went along to this Doctor Who Club meeting and it all went from there. And I can remember in those first few meetings watching stuff like the Aztecs and the Gunfighters and Dragonfire, way before it was on television here. Mm. I can remember watching the Daleks, the 1963 serial for the first time ever. I can remember watching The Invasion in a dark room, a multi-gen black and white copy. I can remember when Tomb of the Cybermen was rushed out here in 92 and we all sat there and watched it. The same thing in 96 when we all got the telly movie. And there are people that I've met in fandom who are my some of my closest and dearest friends. I've been to some of their weddings. Um, I even read a poem at one of their weddings and i'm now sitting here doing podcasts with people i've i've visited people in the united kingdom who i've met through doctor who fandom yeah and you know it's pretty pretty phenomenal thing to think that going along to this thing 30 years ago was the start of a 30-year involvement in one way or another yeah oh look that that's really great and now that i think about it (laughs) it would have been 87 when i went to my first doctor who party at sydney university as well i couldn't tell you the actual date if i find some of my old fanzines i might be able to find the date because we used to do reviews of what the the parties were like but um it would be mine as well how about that well there you go the only reason i could find out the date was because that was the period where doctor who was being broadcast two episodes on a saturday afternoon yes and so when that happened we actually watched those episodes go out so i know what episodes i watched at that meeting and i was able to find the broadcast dates 
Ah, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, look, I, I think I'll have them in, in the club fanzine that we put together, our local club fanzine. There you go. Do you know something interesting, though? At the at the Sydney Uni parties, they used to show, like, new episodes, like they'd get in Delta and the Bannerman or Dragonfire, like you mentioned, or whatever, you know, first run straight in from the UK. And in the other theatre, if you didn't want to watch those, you could watch old episodes. And so I never got to watch many of the old episodes because I was always watching the new stuff. So I, I didn't see some of those classic uh, stories straight away. Um, our club president used to borrow some, I think, off Dallas Jones from time to time. But, yeah, good memories, that sort of stuff, isn't it? It, it really was. Just that excitement of somebody's got the curse of Fenric. Yeah. <laughs> Ahead of time. Yeah, like like 18 months, two years before we would see it out here on broadcast. Oh, the wait was stupid. The The only anomaly there was uh, Remembrance, which they showed pretty soon after the UK. That's right, But yeah. everything else was late. Late as hell. Yeah. In fact, I think when they were showing Remembrance, it had screened just after them showing season 24 for the first time. They showed that they, they literally went from season 24 into Remembrance. That's right. So we had five stories as a run. And then probably went back to Tom Baker repeats or something. <laughs> yeah, or something like that <laughs> for the millionth time. I know. Life was tough back then. Oh, my oh. goodness. We're watching Terror of the Zygons again. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, someone in the UK wants a copy again. Oh, better record it. <laughs> um, another minor topic for me. I would just want to give a quick shout out to a couple of podcasts. This this is always a tricky thing to do because if you shout out to some podcasts, I'm sure there are people who do other podcasts who we get along with. And I'll think, oh, why aren't they talking about mine? No, guys, I just want to talk about two this time. And I'm talking about I'll Explain Later and Complete Menagerie. Two very, very good podcasts. Complete Menagerie is Samuel Payne, Greg Jamison and Tom Bailey. They're guys just having fun. You know, they'll say things like Peter Davidson just to mess with people's heads during podcasts. <laughs> and I'll insert little clips of Freddie Mercury here and there. And they'll keep pointing out when they're having conversations about who's dead now. They'll say, oh, such and such. Oh, he's dead now. You know, it's my sense of humour. I, I can understand that not everyone would get it. But this, I find it very funny. I find it very enjoyable. While the Explain Later pod, Jim Hall, Matt Nita and John West, this is a more serious sort of podcast. It's still funny though at times. They'll take three stories with a linking sort of theme. Um, I mean, a recent one they called Trouble Down the Pit and they did the Satan Pit, Mark of the Rani and Creature from the Pit. That was a fairly literal interpretation. Sometimes it's a bit <laughs> looser than that. And they'll talk about three stories across the course of an hour in a really entertaining way. And that, that's a really great podcast too. So if you folk out there haven't heard of those, do look them up. And also, just while we are talking about podcasts, I want to mention that Prog to Who recently turned three years old. And it got me thinking that um, Who Wars, which is the podcast that preceded this, went out first on September 7th in 2014. So it's almost three years old too. There's a there's a direct line, if you will, between Who Wars and this podcast because I just kept doing them. I just changed the name and cut out the Star Wars content. So um, yeah, almost three years of podcasting for me too, in a in a linear way. Well, there you go. Mm, so yeah, some bit of podcast news there. Fair enough. Now, Rob, we don't mention every Doctor Who story we've watched in the past month when we do these, but sometimes no. we pick we pick one that maybe is worth a mention and i wanted to mention one this month because i sat down and watched the ark oh yes i watched that a few months ago 
Yeah, look, and the arc has always been a favourite story of mine. I, I love the direction of it. I love the story of it. I love that part two cliffhanger where you see the statue with the monoid's head. That's just a brilliant idea. Oh, and yeah. so well done. But watching this uh, with the background of all the stuff that's going on in the world at the moment, particularly over in America where you've got some really quite awful things mm. happening and some awful tones to our conversations, and then to watch the arc which is all about tolerance. And it's all about two different races that treat each other in a very awful way. First of all, the humans are oppressing the monoids. They, they do it in what they think is a very benevolent way, but they do, they do sort of treat them as second-class citizens. And, yeah. and the Doctor notes that. The Doctor pulls them, as, you know, just, just makes some comments about that, but he's too busy dealing with a virus to actually fix it. Bloody dodo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then the tables are turned and the monoids treat the humans in a less benevolent way as second-class citizens. And mm. you see there how just ridiculous this idea of racism and intolerance is. And the Doctor twice in that story uses the line, you must travel with understanding as well as hope. Mm. Nice line. It is. I just thought for a show from 1965, I think it is, to have a message that resonates so powerfully today, you must travel with understanding as well as hope. And this idea that species and races and peoples and religions, whatever the divide, you know, people invent, actually should just understand each other and work together and live in harmony. It's, it's sad that the message is still relevant today, but it's so wonderful the Doctor Who's message does transcend, you know, 50-something 50 50 years later. Oh, yeah. We can't say that about some shows from the 60s and 70s. I had a friend talking about Love Thy Neighbour on their <laughs> Facebook wall recently. I was thinking, yeah, gosh, wow. <laughs> you wouldn't get away with that today on television. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, the arc, yeah, some some lovely sentiments there. And, and, and in a lot of Doctor Who over the years, you know. Okay, uh, before we get on to our main topic for this episode, let's talk about our main topic for next episode. So if people want to send us some submissions, they can. Dave, you and I have decided that we're going to talk about who knew who's Beryl Reed is next episode. <laughs> Do you want to explain this? That's right. So we wanted to spend a bit of time looking at the new series. We thought that was important. And we thought, you know what? Every time people talk about the old series, one thing that keeps coming up is this idea of stunt casting or celebrity casting. The Beryl Reed thing, you know, did she work or did she not work? Uh, Nicholas Parsons in The Curse of Fenric, uh, Jeffrey Bailden in The Creature from the Pit, all these actors that would come into Doctor Who with a reputation behind them and sometimes they work, we go, that's a wonderful piece of celebrity casting. And sometimes they don't work, we go, that's a terrible piece of stunt casting. <laughs> and so we're asking our audience... What's the equivalent for new Doctor Who? Who are the actors or the actresses that you've looked at and gone, that was a wonderful piece of celebrity casting. I can't believe they got that. When they appeared on screen, I sat up and I went, oh my God, they've got them. How brilliant. Mm. And who are the ones you go, yeah, look, I see why they cast him, but gee, that didn't work. Yeah. I think it's going to be a very interesting topic. I've already got some ideas of my own. Yeah, I've got a couple. I've got a couple of good ones and I've got at least one one that I think didn't work. And, and we're calling it New Who's Beryl Reed because even today, I can't decide if I think that was a wonderful piece of casting or a terrible decision. It kind of depends on the mood when I watch Earthshock, if I like her or not <laughs> in, that, in that role. 
Yeah, look, for me as a kid, because I didn't know who she was, it was just an old woman flying the spaceship. And it was like, that's weird, it's sort of quirky, but it didn't have quite the same impact for me than for people, say, in the UK, going, oh my God, Beryl Reed's flying that spaceship. No, no, look, there are, there are a couple of other examples like that, but uh, let's save it for next month. Absolutely. So, shall we move on? We shall. So, our topic this month, as we flagged, is those stories that, as a kid, you just didn't like, didn't get, maybe kind of hated. <laughs> but now, they're one of your favourites, and you absolutely get it. Something, something just clicked in your mind as you became an adult, and you've gone, I can't believe I never liked this one. So... We've got a whole lot of suggestions from the audience, but maybe to kick us off, let's let's look at one of our picks each. Rob, what have you got? Dave, my pick to kick us off is Revelation of the Daleks. Ooh, go on. Now, my memories of this as a kid are that I love the start of the story, the TARDIS in the snow. And I guess that was a lucky accident because they didn't know it was going to snow, but you know, it made <laughs> that scene look just beautiful. And Colin in that big blue cape, you know, covering up that god-awful costume. It looked so cool. But <laughs> then we got to the disc jockey and that completely threw me. I was a Young Ones fan and Alexi Sale doing funny voices and dressing up just pulled me right out of it. This... This was stunt casting, <laughs> to talk about stunt casting. Um, Alexi Sale, my God, I remember thinking, he's got no place being here. Why is he in my show? And why is he talking to these corpses anyway? How are they hearing him? What's the point? It just seemed really stupid. And don't get me started on when he destroys the Daleks with rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, the black humour, I didn't get as a kid. I mean, everyone looks at Revelation now like, oh God, that's full of black humor. I didn't get that as a kid. Nowadays, I love that sort of thing. I think it's amazing. It's great. Back then, not a chance. I also didn't like how everyone's in pairs in this story. There's the Doctor and Perry, Natasha and Gagori, Jobel and Tassimbika, well, to some degree, uh, Kara and Vogel, Takis and Lilton, of course, Orsini and Bostock. It seemed really unnatural that everyone was paired off in pairs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like that. I mean, was Say were taking the Holmesian double act a bit far <laughs> by having all these pairs? Maybe, maybe hoping that if you throw enough double acts in, some of them have to work. <laughs> and I guess some of them do. I really, I, I did like the concept of the Imperial Daleks. I thought the cream and gold looked amazing. I still do. But in terms of what the Daleks actually get to do, it's just all up and down stone corridors and like a mad scientist lab. It doesn't feel big and open like, I guess, the next time we see them in Remembrance. But as I've grown up, the storyline, that black humour, Orsini and Bostock as Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, you know, some something I didn't even know about when I was, you know, 10 years old or when it, whatever I was when I first watched it. The, the general oddness of the story, the fact Graham Harper's directing it and did some, some really cool things. Again, I didn't really understand direction when I was 10 years old. A lot of stuff's really fallen into place and it's absolutely in my top two stories of this season. It probably is the top story of the season for me now. But at the time, no way. No way. And I just want to end on one final note, Dave, and I've, I've hinted to you that I was going to ask you a question about Colin Baker yes. uh, and his era. The working title of Revelation of the Daleks was The End of the Road. And obviously the show got cancelled or put on hiatus straight after this. How would we feel if this episode had been called The End of the Road and that was the end of Doctor Who for a period. Would we look back on Colin's era a bit more favourably, 
you know, because season 22 isn't that bad. I mean, Revelation and Vengeance on Varos are high points for me. Mark of the Rani and Two Doctors aren't too bad. I've always had a slightly soft side for Attack of the Cybermen. It's really only Time Lash that feels dodgy. Might he have been remembered as a better Doctor, faster, if, if we only had one series to judge him on and that was it? I think if that had been the last series and he'd got a full stop at the end of it, it would make the era easier to watch and appreciate. Mm. I actually think that we... Let me answer this in two parts, and I'm thinking off the top of my head here. Yeah, that's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, okay. Would we judge his era better? I think the answer is yes. Would we judge his doctor better? I think the answer is no. Because I don't think that the stories in Trial... Whilst I've got a soft spot for a lot of Trial... I, I do think that detracts from the, the the feel and the vibe and the effectiveness of his era. I, I agree with you there, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have enhanced its reputation. It doesn't enhance its reputation, but I think a lot of the fondness for Colin's Doctor is explored in stuff like his relationship with Perry and the Mysterious Planet, the softer and more fun and enjoyable Doctor that you see in the Terror of the Vervoids. So I think that Colin. Uh, his doctor is enhanced by having more but yeah no i think maybe his era as a set of stories would be uh, better regarded if it was just that season mm. yeah it just got me thinking when i heard that it was called the end of the road i thought yeah what if that really was the end of the road <laughs> mm, interesting oh one last thing i've jotted down here is like the other story i'm going to pull out later in this um in this piece the doctor's not hugely important in revelation and he's not important in the other story I pulled out. I wasn't thinking that as a kid, but maybe it's somehow subconsciously got to me as well, that the Doctor didn't have much of a role. I kind of like that thing now, actually. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I, I tend to agree with you. I had the same problems with this story as a kid that you did. I haven't learned to regard it quite as well, but certainly I can appreciate stuff like the Cara Vogel relationship and some of the banter there. You know, that that's really quite nice. And the Alexi sales part, I totally get now. You're right. As a kid, you don't get it. But as an adult, you go, this is a really kind of cool, quirky black idea. I like this. And sales mm. playing it right. Yeah. Yeah. And famously, he, uh, in rehearsals, wasn't playing it like that. He was doing it very straight. And John Nathan Turner was like, oh, my God, we've hired Alexi Sale and he's just doing this straight. And he got, I think, Graham Harper to have a word. And Sale said, no, no, when, when I do it on the day... When the camera rolls, you'll see a different thing. And they just had to trust him. And mm. he really pulled out something really bizarre and very cool. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Now, Dave, what's your story to kick us off? So my story to kick us off is the Androids of Tara. Ooh, okay. As a kid, I was bored. Mm. There's no monster. There's no strange futuristic alien world. The first Romana, I've really learned to appreciate as an adult but she fell flat with me as a very dull character as a kid and this is a story that's very much tied up in literature where lots of adults talk conspiratorially in corners to each other mm. there's not a lot of actual stuff happening as an adult though that dialogue sparkles and Count Grendel of Gracht is a wonderful character and you, you get the literary references and you can enjoy the direction of the way that Tara's been filmed and the wonderful use of Leeds Castle, which I visited last Christmas. Um, <laughs> Name dropper. <laughs> you, you can just appreciate it as an adult mm. in a way that you, you, you can't as a kid. I was, I was bored there, but now, and indeed, this goes for a large amount of season 16 particularly. 
a lot of it is very dialogue driven. It is very literate. And it, as a kid, it didn't quite work as well as, you know, other areas where it is monster of the week and everything, which is a kid you love. And I've really grown to love this story particularly, but that season generally as an adult, I really appreciate what they're doing. And I think this was Doctor Who for adults. Yeah, good call. I mean, it's not a story that comes to mind immediately for me, maybe because the first Romana is my favourite female companion of the 70s. <laughs> okay. In much the same way that Polly's my favourite female companion of the 60s. Uh, so I've always had a soft spot for this story, um, and indeed any story with her in it. Uh, but we'll get off that topic. Um, yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. And I think in some of these stories we go through, there might be... Um, similar ideas i mean we don't know what the thinking is from some of our listeners behind their picks but i think you know when there is no monster of the week there's no whiz bang things going on if it's a bit too talky it can bore you as a kid but as an adult you 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 just love yeah Mm, exactly exactly so we'll move now to uh, a couple of larger letters that we've got so the first email that we've got here is from Mark from 42 to Doomsday. Hello, Mark. Yeah, thanks for writing in. He says, Dear Robin Dave, I know the call out from you was for stories that you thought weren't much cop when you were younger, but you think are okay now. However, when I was younger, so much younger than today, I had a problem with not a single story as such, but an entire season. Ooh. In the 80s, the perception towards season 17 wasn't kind. It's not kind now. <laughs> well, it was. I can. I know where Mark's going with this. It had a horrible reputation when I joined fandom. But yeah, he, he says comments such as "City of Death" is the only decent story. Tom took the humor too far, and cheap and shabby looking were often hurled at it by the fanzines of the day. And as a young and impressionable fan who took all things who way too seriously, I listened intently to the perceived wisdom from the elder statespersons of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria who reinforced the view that this season was so bad that it was the worst in the entire history of the show. Season 24 was not yet made. (laughs) I even started to say things like, the Williams era was complete crap, and season 17 is an abomination, when I actually hadn't seen any of it. And to make matters worse, I wouldn't even read the target adaptions of the stories, as I assumed they would just be bad in print form. Oh no, Mark. When the series stopped in 1989, and the slow trickle of official and unofficial VHS releases came out, I managed to obtain copies of stories from this season, and guess what? I thoroughly enjoyed watching them. I don't know whether I became the right age to appreciate them, or maybe I just lightened up, but now I think these stories are a lot of fun to watch. Tom and Lala work well together, for obvious reasons, and we have to remember at the time production money was too tight to mention, so it was a miracle that anything made it to screen, except for Sharda, of course. The concepts in some of these stories, in particular Naimon, Sharda, City of Death, and The Nightmare of Eden, are imaginative, but I think some of the more interesting guest actor performances and direction, or lack thereof in Nightmare of Eden's case, detract somewhat from what the authors and the script editor's original intent was. So my advice about Season 17 is to go in with an open mind and give it a go. You never know, you might find yourself, like I do, having a great time watching it. Keep punching, Mark from 42 to Doomsday. Well, thank you for that, Mark. And just listening to that, I mean, lightening up, I think, is very important with Doctor Who or with anything. Um, I've noticed as I've gotten older and now into my early 40s that things that seemed really, 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 really important when I was a teenager and maybe really, really important when I was in my 20s and really important in my 30s just aren't that important anymore. And you can love something like season 17 or at least, you know, 
enjoy it, if not love it. I get where you're coming from. I think that that's a big part of it. Yeah, and it particularly has throughout it that Douglas Adams sense of humour, which is a very undergraduate sense of humour. And I think you do need to be a teenager or more to actually get a lot of it. Kind of like a lot of Monty Python. Mm. Yes, as a kid, you might just get some of the jokes and some of the silliness of it, but it's not really until you sort of become 15, 16 and more that you, you would get that, that undergraduate sense of humour. And I think you really do need to be a bit older to appreciate Douglas Adams. Yeah. Oh, I think so. There, There's that kind of humour that doesn't sort of stop and, and let you laugh, you know, or, or stop for the laugh track to kick in. It, it just keeps going and you either pick up on it and giggle along while it's going or or you don't get it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. A, a line like they hung in the air exactly the way that bricks don't. It's not mm. a laugh out loud, laughter track moment, but it's a, such a clever, funny line. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this comes back to something, a podcast like Complete Menagerie that I was mentioning earlier. You know, it doesn't stop to guffaw at itself. You know, you've just got to keep listening and, and you either get the jokes that they're saying or you don't. Yeah, so yeah, definitely an interesting nomination there. I think that you're right, as fandom has grown up, season 17 as a whole has been refound. And um, I certainly remember the atmosphere that Mark was talking about because that was very much not repeated for a long time out here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And and like I said, when you started reading that letter, it still doesn't have a great reputation. That that sort of feeling about it has, has resonated through the ages. And, you know, people have picked up on... I wouldn't be surprised if some people out there, some younger fans who are into the old shows, are like Mark in his earlier days and are repeating that line without even seeing the episodes. You know, yeah. it's entirely possible. And, and will there be people that turn around with some seasons of the new series and go, you know what, series two... Don't bother watching that. I've heard it's crap. Yeah, they're just too smug. <laughs> yeah, yep. They're all smug. Rose is awful. Sidemen's story is rubbish. Don't, don't bother with season two. Yeah, even though the smugness was the whole point of the series so that the finale has a payoff, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. We have another lengthy email. We do. This is super lengthy, so I might get you to kick in halfway through this if you don't mind, um, Dave. Yep. It's from Jim Hall, and thank you, Jim. I'm I'm not making fun. It, it, it's great to get long long letters like this because they really do, um, you know, give us a lot of information to to uh, enjoy. Jim writes. So the stories that failed to impress at the time, but that I've since grown to love. Autumn 1980. I'm eight years old. Doctor Who has been promoted from merely being my favourite TV show into something much, much bigger, largely thanks to the universe that's opened up with the discovery of Target books and, of course, Doctor Who Weekly. Then the show returns with all the cosy fun sucked out of it. Scribbly new electronic music. I can see where this is going, Dave. Oh, yeah. Uh, Scribbly new electronic music and everything's brightly lit and clinical. The spooky metal rings, time vortex tiles replaced with a dreary load of stars zooming past, just like every other space show. A snazzy logo lacking the cocoa tin warmth of the diamond and arches and the doctors wearing a uniform now, all burgundy. I want the old ragbag wardrobe he had before, which looked like it had been cobbled together from a zillion jumble sales. The Doctor is suddenly a moody grump, and once Tom Baker's retirement is announced, I'm counting down the weeks till he leaves as he's making the show miserable to sit through. The whole thing feels like the inviting aroma of freshly baked fruitcake being rudely smothered by the stench of hospital antiseptic. (laughs) Despite this, I must stress, I was never even faintly tempted by Buck Rogers, which was screening opposite on ITV. Doctor Who, after all, still had Lala Ward dressed as a saucy sailor. (laughs) which trumps any special effects. <laughs> You'll have to take over. I'm giggling. So I'll, I'll take over as we move forward in time here. 
Now I'm 45, and season 18 is without doubt my absolute favourite of the show's entire run. Wow. And for many of the same reasons that I loathed it as a kid. Between J&T's insistence on stamping his own shock of the new aesthetic brand, Bidmead's determination to stuff dialogue with new scientist jargon while still commissioning stories that are pretty much fairy tales, and perhaps most of all, Baker's decision that if he couldn't have his own way, he wasn't going to join in, all combined unexpectedly to make a magnificent final chapter for the fourth Doctor, and a worthy epilogue to the show's audience-friendly run throughout the 70s, as the clockwork inevitably runs down. Here, three wrongs make a right. As many have noted, most of the stories feature civilizations in decline, or about to be overwhelmed by the past, giving the whole season a sense of a funeral bell toiling long before the cloister is even introduced. The tedious show-off doctor has been replaced by a weary realist, struggling to smile, drained of all of his magic, but definitely not prepared to give up. It's obvious that this season should never have been commissioned, a sterile-looking bunch of baffling yarns with a party-pooper hero and a bellowing cactus. <laughs> Nothing here was going to attract casual viewers, and yet I absolutely cherish this run of gloomy epics. A sour frisson, generated by a youthful, ambitious production team clashing against a funhouse that's been boarded up. Wow. We'll hear a little bit more from Jim off-topic later on in our letters segment, but, gee, some good thoughts there. Oh, that was so well written. <laughs> I, I love that description. It, it sums up how I feel about it. I, I love Tom's last season, but I can see all of those problems and, you know, such in it. But, yeah, I, I like it too. And I'm just trying to think back to when I was a kid, did I like it? I think I might not have even seen a lot of it as a kid. I might have been getting on into my teens before I saw much of it. I'm, I, I, I can't really remember, but I, I love it now, that's for sure. I, I did see this when I was very young, not on first broadcast, but famously when the Australian census still couldn't decide if they were going to let us show Caves of Androzani or not, we went straight from Planet of Fire to Ledger Hive and did a repeat of season 18 out here. Mm. And I remember seeing it at that stage when I was very young, and I don't think I got it then, but I did love a number of the visuals in stuff like, for example, Full Circle, which is a very lush visual story. It, it certainly wasn't a favourite, though, but I'm with you. Season 18 is now one of my four favourite seasons, well above all the others, uh, for all the reasons that, that you mentioned. But this is the great thing about being able to look back at classic Doctor Who from a distance. He's right. At the time, season 18 wasn't perhaps the best way to attract a casual audience. I would argue that some of season 17 wasn't the best way to keep a casual audience. Mm. I'm so glad, though, that we have season 17, I'm so glad that we have City of Death, that we had Douglas Adams writing a season. I, I, I think it's wonderful season 17 happened, but it's good that it was only one season. I think that it's wonderful that season 18 happened. We've got this more mature, drier, you know, neat Scotch style of Doctor Who. And I'm so glad that this exists, but I'm also glad it was only one year. Mm. Does it make you think New Who could do with, you know, shorter sort of production teams as well maybe not one year because there's only what 11 12 stories in a year but maybe two years perhaps is is the max not you know four or five or six uh look i think that would be advantageous but one thing that i think is very good for doctor who is when the production team changes in pieces so even if jnt's there a while you get jnt and bidmead and jnt and saywood and jnt and cartmel and in the same time you've got Tom Baker, then you've got Davison, then Colin, then McCoy. So you've got 
different doctors and script editors and producers and writers and different dynamics within the team. Even if somebody's there a longer time, you're mixing up the other aspects. So, yeah, I think I think that this this mix and matching over time is really important. Mm. All right. Well, look, shall we shall we rip into what our listeners have been saying uh, on Twitter? Because we got a lot of responses. We have. So we're going to go through them in eras, starting with the Pertwee era, Rob. Yeah, starting with Pertwee. No one pulled out anything from Hartnell or Troughton. And I was thinking about that and I thought, well, I don't have any myself. And it might be because I didn't see a lot of those stories until I was older. So I can't I can't really talk about, oh, how did I feel about Keys of Marinus when I was five years old or something? I, I just never saw it at that age. Yeah, I think that's very much the case. And um, classic first and second Doctor stories I did see when I was relatively young, like when I say 10 or 11 and getting into fandom, uh, I liked, you know, because I was seeing things like the pilot of an unearthly child and things like that, and I just thought they were fantastic. So I, I don't even have that to, to go on. So we're kicking off with Pertwee, and the first is from the Polis Box, at the Polis Box on Twitter, and they say, the vast majority of the Pertwee era, James Bond in space, I thought. Love it now. I was a very simple child. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's interesting i i really enjoyed pertwee as a kid but i i get if you've maybe come from the tratton era it would be quite a culture shock yeah look i've got to say growing up pertwee wasn't really one of the doctors i didn't get to see a lot of pertwee i must admit we we're always getting the tom baker repeats it seemed so pertwee wasn't like top of the pops for me either but you know many of the episodes i did see i did enjoy i mean the Demons is to one of my favourite Doctor Who stories of all time. So I, I can't fully relate, but I get where they're coming from. Uh, Mark Watts at Sparky Watts 2000 says the Claws of Axos bored me when I was younger, but I really enjoy it now. Yeah, I can relate to that. I found the Claws of Axos just too weird. As a kid, you're just like, what's, what's, this go- what's going on? I don't get this. It's weird and it's bizarre and I don't understand it. And, and now the Master's in it. Yeah, where'd he come from? Yeah, um, Claws of Axos is certainly not my favourite story now. Um, I think it's probably the weakest of that season, actually. But I can appreciate it a lot more now than I did as a kid, absolutely. Mm, uh, Fair enough. Isaac Dakin, he tweets at I Whitaker Dakin, says the Green Death, probably, but now I love it. It's very interesting. I've I've not known many people to not like the Green Death. Yeah, I wish we had a little bit more from Isaac on that one. That's a really interesting pick. Yeah, was it the fact Joe was leaving, perhaps? You know, there was sad or... Or maybe some of the environmental messaging and the stuff about big corporations doesn't quite uh, work. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that that could be it. Yeah. Isaac, write into us. Let us know a bit more. Mm, Please. So I'll take us into the Tom Baker era. The first we have is from James Stoker, who tweets at Apu Kotrat. Oh, my God. (laughs) Apu Kotrat. Apu Kotrat. I wonder what that is. I hope it's not something rude. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> he nominates the city of death. Now he, he says, "Now brilliant." Then long dialogues where adults laugh at things that aren't funny. No monsters and endless scenery. That's actually a really interesting comment. Yeah, but there we go. I mean, this is something we were saying earlier. You know, there are stories without zap guns or monsters or whatever, and they can bore kids. And here's the perfect example from James. Yeah, and I certainly remember not that I hated this as a kid, but. Going from Destiny of the Daleks to this, I, you know, I didn't really know where Paris was. I didn't really know what the Mona Lisa was. And you're right, that Adam's esque humour that I love now doesn't quite resonate with 
you as a kid. You, you uh, I, I did like Duggan going around punching everybody. I got that. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, a line like, so tell me, what's Scaglione's angle? I don't know. I was never any good at geometry. <laughs> you know, as a yeah, kid, you're not going to yeah. get that. Um, or what's the line about the, uh, the uh, butler being fantastically violent or something yes what a wonderful butler he's so violent yeah (laughs) that's fantastic it is it is and we should probably give a shout out to the new to who guys who did a very good podcast on this just last week on city of death and that's i was smiling throughout listening to that and then repeating the jokes that's worth uh worth mentioning but yeah i think this is a really good call from james yeah good one james now we now have a few that echo jim hall's comment about season 18 so we'll do these as a group Gosh, so we've, we've leapt straight to there. Well, I guess City of Death is pretty late as well in his run. Well, let's face it. As a kid, the Inchcliffe year was just monster after monster and lots of good fun. I think most people yeah. like that. And perhaps there are some people whose opinion of the Hinchcliffe years has declined as adults. Mm, maybe. 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 Yeah, I still love it. I do too. So we're going to go into the Season 18 nominations now. Now, I'll just say to those who've tweeted in, if you've given us multiple stories from different eras, we're going to deal with each one in the appropriate era. So don't think we've lost half your tweet. It will be coming. (laughs) We'll get to you. So we now have the second half of the tweet from James Stoker, who says, Leisure Hive and Warrior's Gate, incomprehensible equal dull. Still find them incomprehensible, but appreciate the style. That's probably fair when it comes to something like Warrior's Gate. Uh, look, it, yeah, I think it's very fair. Uh, Projoy, who tweets at Ganesh Projoy, has nominated several stories, but from season 18 picked Full Circle. John Arnold at the underscore Arn, Warrior's Gate. Went right over my head as a child, now can appreciate how comparatively subversive and stylish it was. Mm. And we have one from Brendan Jones, who tweets at Critical Theory, and he's part of the Flight Through Entirety podcast, another Australian podcast. He nominates State of Decay. I didn't understand it and didn't see Full Circle or Warrior's Gate till my teens. Wow, some good thoughts there. To start perhaps with Brendan's, that's one thing about doing linked stories, whether it's the Space trilogy or the Guardian trilogy. If you didn't see all the trilogy, it's going to struggle as a, a story on standalone, particularly when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. Who's this Adric guy? Where'd he come from? What's happening? Ugh. Where are they? <laughs> yeah, that's right. What, 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 what is Space? Why are they getting home? Yeah. So I was just going to say, Dave, a few people there mentioned Warrior's Gate. And um, I like that comment, you know, that they appreciate the style, even if it is still incomprehensible. It's uh, it's one of those stories. Look, it is. And I'll say now Warrior's Gate was actually one of my nominations. So it's a snap from me on those. I remember watching this as a kid and being utterly confused, bored, baffled. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a lot of people walking around against a white background saying incomprehensible stuff. The Doctor being kind of just bored himself. Lots of cardboard scenery. I I just remember absolutely hating this as a kid. And now I love it. Because now I get it. I get that stuff. All that stuff about the Doctor knocking over the cup in the past and then he picks it up in the future, but in reverse. Yeah. Um, the way that Rorvik works... All the uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstein stuff. I love it now, but as a kid, you know what? White backgrounds as a kid is not exciting. No, not at all. But it, it is such a unique look to it. it it's, it's, it's quite beautiful to look at, actually. It is. So really interesting that Season 18's got a lot of nominations from our listeners. 
it is interesting because it was meant to be the point at which you know they they re-energized the show and maybe got kids back into it again but it looks like it wasn't working so well no but it has aged well it seems yeah well that that's the flip side of the coin isn't it Mm. shall we move on to davo let's go greatest era in doctor who davo (laughs) um brian dobson bw dobson on twitter says kinder paul schoons hello paul uh he says as a child i liked all that i saw and read of doctor who as a teen though kinder and snake dance were two i didn't care for but love now john arnold who we heard from earlier uh also mentioned kinder and spanky backpack uh, mentions snake dance oh no it's the boring one <laughs> so <laughs> D- dave all these people mentioning kinder and guess what it's a snap from me tell us why rob my memories of kinder as a kid and this might seem weird coming from a kid is that i thought the jungle looked really fake <laughs> okay. i was really concerned about this when i was a kid okay and there was also lots of talking and this is something we've already touched on with other stories. You know, lots of talking isn't so exciting to a kid. There was also a lot of weirdness. I think everyone can agree with that. And it just didn't seem like Doctor Who. Um, but as an adult, I don't mind that jungle at all. Of course, it's fake, but it's nowhere near as bad as I thought it was. I think the first time I watched this on DVD, I was thinking, why did I not like this jungle? It's okay. I know it's in a studio, but it's okay. The dialogue, meanwhile, is fantastic, as is the weirdness. I've actually seen it said that one of the chief strengths of Kinder is that it's almost like a piece of experimental theatre, mm. uh, more than a Doctor Who story. And Christopher Bailey, who wrote it, his background was in the theatre, so that could actually be quite true. To a kid, however, this sort of thing is just bollocks. Like, this is experimental theatre in a fake jungle? Oh, God, what's going on? Um, when we go into Tegan's mind, it's absolutely freaky. As a kid, I just didn't get it. The really sensual way she acts when she's possessed when i first saw this that that didn't register at all but you know as an adult good lord <laughs> that, yes, you know yes. the way she acts in some of those scenes oh wow um the way madness is portrayed i don't think i appreciated as a kid and you helped me out with this quote earlier in the week um of you can't mend people you know i was, I was typing into twitter you can't fix people and i was wondering why i couldn't find the quote but no you you can't mend people you know it's it's over the top and to me as a kid, it was just like, oh, who's this guy overacting? Why is he saying this? But when you're older and wiser and you realize what's being conveyed, it's really bloody scary, you know, how he's going on there. Yeah, it's interesting you say all this. I didn't mind Kinder as a kid because there was enough stuff with the Mara and the snakes and all of that to just about keep me engaged. But certainly my appreciation of it has grown considerably as an adult, for all the reasons you talk about. And I now reckon it's got cliffhanger for cliffhanger, probably the best set of cliffhangers in any set of Doctor Who. But as you say, unless you're old enough to get them, you don't get them. I agree. And look, even now, not every plot point is explained. Why does Hindle insist on making that model city? How does the empty box actually work? Who are the old couple playing chess? I still don't know these things. But it doesn't bother me as much as when I was a kid. Yeah, that's that's really good. How do you feel about Snake Dance, Rob? Because I've got to confess, I didn't like that as a kid, but I still don't like it much as an adult. Snake Dance is not as good as Kinder. No. As as a kid, I probably felt very similarly to it as I did to Kinder. It has some similar themes going on. Now, I 
kind of like it, but yeah, it's it's not one of the strongest stories from Davo's era for me. Again, I'll bring this up when we're talking about Revelation, we're saying the Doctor wasn't hugely important to the story, and here in again in Kinder, I'll mention that the Doctor's probably not hugely important to the story. It's almost like the writer, or perhaps Eric Sayward, is more interested in what's going on elsewhere and just pushes the Doctor aside. Mm, that is um, true. And one final note I've jotted down when this went out it came last in Doctor Who magazine's season poll so that means worse than time flight (laughs) you know so maybe it wasn't just me as a kid maybe a lot of people just didn't get this but subsequently I think a lot of people say this is very very good I actually have a soft spot for most of season 19 truth be told as an adult okay yeah I mean Earthshock Kinder Visitation Castrovalva they're all great yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot there to like now you mentioned it. Yeah, it's not a favourite of mine, but yeah, there's a lot I can watch and enjoy, you're right. Yeah, even toss in Black Orchid and Forward to Doomsday, it's really only Time Flight that's a bit of a stinker, for me at least, when I look at Season 19. Uh, look, I quite enjoy Forward to Doomsday, but Black Orchid's terrible. <laughs> it does, however, have, um, a bit of a side note, but it does, however, have one of my favourite DVD commentary tracks, because it opens with the introduction, and then Peter Davison says, now, if you're one of those fans that doesn't like it when we make fun of a story, don't listen to this comedy track, because it's a Terrence Dudley story, and we all hate it. <laughs> Turn off now. <laughs> there are some gold commentary tracks from the Davo era. There really are. Mm. Shall I take us into the Colin Baker era? Please do. So we have one nomination here, and that's from John Hall, who tweets at John O'Holler. He nominates... Twin Dilemma. He says, Twin Dilemma Strangling. It almost made me stop watching probably everyone else as well. I was seven, just wrong. I like it a bit more now, but not much. And I think this goes back to what I was saying in our last episode, Rob. Twin Dilemma, when you come back to it after a while, and you can sort of excise from your mind the worst parts, there is an acceptable and fun kind of B-movie space rump in there. Mm. Oh, yeah, there is. There but if is. you're watching it on first broadcast... And this, so this is the thing. I don't know if this is as much about being seven as opposed to being an adult. Or is it about watching this on first broadcast and going, this is what Doctor Who is today? Versus, look, I know the Doctor Who went for 26 years. We've got good and bad stories. I can just take Twin Dilemma as one piece of history. Mm. Whether, whether it's more about that. Yeah, John singles out the strangling here. And that... That's even hard to take as an adult, you know. Mm. We can say, oh, it's got this B-movie plot going on. That's that's kind of okay. But, gosh, that strangling scene. Could you get away with that today? Well, well, no, and that's the thing. I actually think that becomes worse as an adult because you don't just see the violence. You actually understand the full implications of, you know, what a man doing this to a woman actually is and how vile that is. Yeah, and why didn't she say, look, next place we stop, I'm getting off? Instead, she sort of stays with him. <laughs> and why doesn't he say sorry? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's the worst part. Exactly. Oh, wow. The 80s were a different time. And I was there. You know? <laughs> it's not even like I'm looking back on some ancient era. You know, I was I was there. Gosh, so different. Yeah, so an interesting nomination there. But thank you. It's good to have different perspectives. Absolutely. Let's go into the McCoy era. Dave Ringo, Dave underscore Ringo on Twitter says Paradise Towers. Dylan Reese at Dylan Does Film says Delta and the Bannermen. I thought it was terrible. Now I love it. So fresh and different from what had been going on when Colin Baker was the Doctor. 
and John Arnold, who we've heard from earlier, also mentions Delta and the Bannerman. We are Cult at We Are Cult Online, which is a great Twitter feed to follow, actually. Says pretty much all the McCoys. As a preteen, I just saw the CBBC production values. Now I applaud its imagination and creativity. David Lancaster at Duvid says the Happiness Patrol bored me as an eight-year-old, then read a wonderful fanta section of it in License Denied, and now I love how subversive it is. Hayden Gribble at Gribbler12, our good mate from the Diddly Dumb podcast, nominates the Happiness Patrol, as does uh, Projoy, Ganesh Projoy, um, nominates Happiness Patrol as well. Christopher Bryant at Chap With Wings says, for some reason, I really didn't get Curse of Fenric, and it ranked fourth in the Season 26 poll. So, Dave, there's a fair spread there. I mean, a, a bit of hate for Delta and the Bannermen from the kids, some for Paradise Towers, Happiness Patrol from three of them. And Curse of Fenric, which is a super popular story, but didn't resonate with Christopher. Do you want to pick up the threads on any of those? Well, yeah, I think there's a couple of threads to pick up. With season 24, I can remember that going out when I was about probably eight or nine by the time it was broadcast here. And I also thought that it was cheap, childish, not very engaging. Now I can appreciate a lot of what's going on. I can appreciate the ideas in the Paradise Towers. I can appreciate the fun of Delta and the Bannerman. Um, I always like Dragonfire. I think that's a good adventure. Mm. Happiness Patrol, though, let's face it, this is a story that's really about social commentary. And if you're not old enough to get social commentary, it's people in really bad wigs doing really bizarre things. (laughs) And again, a lot of talking. Yes. And do you know the same... Little fan, i.e. me, who was upset with Alexi Sale, and Alexi Sale can't be in Doctor Who and he can't be doing this. That same fan was saying, you can't paint the TARDIS pink. This is a travesty. <laughs> I, I was incensed that they painted the TARDIS pink in that story. Not because I have a problem with the colour, but it was turning this familiar symbol for me into something else. It was making fun of it somehow. You know, I just thought, no, you can't do that. The, the TARDIS was sacrosanct to me. Yeah, I, I remember having a bit of a problem with that as well when I was younger. But I think there's a lot to love in The Happiness Patrol, but it's not a story for kids. Oh, no, not at all. Um, as for Curse of Fenric, I wonder how much of that is down to the fact that when it was edited, it made no sense. Yeah, you really do need to see the extended version to, to get it, I think. You really do. I can remember quite vividly when uh, the extended version of The Curse of Fenric was shown at a club meeting. And everyone sort of sat around going, oh, wow, I get it now. And then we heard that there was an extended version of Silver Nemesis coming out. We thought, oh, great, maybe that'll make sense. And then we sort of go, no, that didn't help at all. (laughs) Just prolong the agony. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so look, thank you, guys. That that's some great McCoy suggestions there. One thing I will say about the the McCoy era in general is it has aged very well. Yes, except time in the running. Except time in the running. Well, I, I don't count that as part of the McCoy era. I think that's the the last vestiges of the Colin Baker era. Yeah, very true. Very true. Mm. Now, we haven't had a lot of nominations from the new series because there hasn't been quite a lot of time for people to go from being kids to adults. But we have had one really interesting comment on that from the Ginger Luke at Lama underscore Bottle Zero. And they nominate Vincent and the Doctor. Don't know how much I disliked it, but it's a favourite now. Richard Curtis is a brilliant writer. When I heard that Curtis wrote a story, I assumed it would be Blackadder-esque, but no. 
Not exactly as an adult, though, as I'm merely 13 now. Just easier to understand that I know what an invisible monster represents. And that's oh. a really interesting comment, because I, I think, like Happiness Patrol, if you don't get what Vincent and the Doctor is an allegory of, it's a lot of people talking in very dull tones about an invisible monster. Yeah, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to just do, mentally do the math, wondering how old uh, Luke was when, when he might have first seen it. Let's say he was, I don't know, seven or eight. Are you really thinking about depression that deeply at that age? Whereas when you're 13, gosh, it would be a huge issue and something people talk about a lot now. And, you know, some of your friends maybe, you know, battling with it and so on. So you you, you would see that story so differently. And, and, and like he says, it's not a case of growing up to be an adult, but even just in that change between, again, I'm guessing seven and eight and 13, that, that's still a huge, a huge gulf. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big golf in terms of societal awareness. And yeah, I could imagine Vincent and the Doctor really not working with a young kid, but I think it's the best story of the uh, Matt Smith era, personally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's up there for me. It'd be like top two or three for me. It, agreed completely. Mm. So yeah, a really interesting perspective there. Thank you for uh, sending that into us, the Ginger Luke. Yes. Now... Rob, have you got any others on your list that haven't been covered? I do. I I jotted down a few. One of them would be, and we've already discussed it, Warrior's Gate. Um, not not to the same degree as a Kinder or Revelation of the Daleks for me, but it was still one that as a kid it was like, what is going on? Why does this look so weird? What is the story? Is there a story? Ugh. But now it's like, oh, this is, this is quite good. But interesting that both of us nominated three or four stories and both of us picked Warrior's Gate, as did several listeners. Oh, it it is a standout story for weirdness in in that era. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Horror of Fang Rock is another one. Now, this might surprise some people. I think uh, Rob from Forty Two to Doomsday has just exploded um, <laughs> wherever he's listening. But as a kid, I found it a bit boring because the monster was rubbish and they were just stuck in this one set. Um, of the lighthouse some i guess sometimes i went out to the rocks uh, a few times but generally it was just in the lighthouse it was just really boring to me as a kid but now as an adult it's like oh this is really tense and creepy and oh wow this is great i love it now but as a kid yeah not so much it's funny you mention this because whenever uh, the group of us gets together to record the goodies pirate podcast whilst we're waiting for people to turn up i usually put on a doctor who story and the last time i did this we actually had the horror of fang rock and we were sort of watching this, we waited for everyone to arrive, and I made the comment at the time that, yeah, as a kid, I didn't get the whole thing about Adelaide and um, Palmerdale, you know, they were having a bit of an affair on the side, or the mm. relationship between Palmerdale and Skinsale, or why Ben burns the 100-pound note, because he thinks it's going to incriminate him. And all these little, really clever, subtle things about the characters, yeah, as a kid, I remember not getting, I, I didn't dislike it, but... Again, a character-driven story does seem to work better as an adult. Absolutely. absolutely. And like I say, the, the monster was a bit rubbish. So even when you finally got to it at the end, it was like, oh, <laughs> is that it? Uh, yeah, look, at least it's a cool shade of green. <laughs> it's not easy being green, Dave. It's not. Do you have any others? Yeah, I had two others as well. One of them is the gunfighters. Ah, so that gives us a Hartnell. It does give us a Hartnell. I remember watching this again when I would have been eight or nine at a Doctor Who Club meeting. It was a very bad multi-generation copy, so it was very hard to pick up a lot of the dialogue. And 
You know that song that goes all the way through it? No, no, Dave. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I purchased it from my memory. Oh, very smart. Now, look, watching the cleaned up DVD version of that, the song I actually don't mind too much. When you're a kid, the song's not great. But when you're a kid watching a high-pitched Western song that's been copied and on a VHS, you know, four or five times is now quite distorted. God, that was horrible. Yeah, I bet the screen was swirling and the dialogue was... All, all of that. <laughs> and the problem is The Gunfighters is a very clever script. And it's got some really wonderful, funny lines. And Hartnell's performance, his comedy timing there is wonderful. Like the bit where he meets the Clayton brothers, he says, Oh, you're the Clayton brothers. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, or, you know, he gave me his gun. He extracted my tooth. What more do you want? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's got some great bits in it. That's it's for sure. got but some for, really good for bits. For a kid, I get, I get you completely. Yeah, uh, the other is Colony in Space. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this comes down, I think, to the look of it because Colony in Space to a kid is slow. They arrive on a very drab planet and meet people wearing very drab clothes who live in very <laughs> drab huts. Then they go find the aliens who live in a very drab cave. It's just drab. But as an adult, I look at what they're doing and the characters again, and it's a Mac Hawk story and the, the uh, stuff about the future history and everything and the way the master does it. There's a lot to love in Colony in Space. I really, really like it now. But as a kid, it was just drab. Now, I think we can do something cheeky here at the end of this segment. Yes. And reverse the concept what are some stories, Dave, that you maybe loved as a kid but hate as an adult? I'm going to go for two. One of them is The Dominators, mm-hmm. which as a kid, I love the quarks. I love Troughton's performance. I love the whole sort of sci-fi thing. Now I watch it and it's just really cheap. It's a bit silly. And frankly, the Dolcians are so awful. I'm kind of on the Dominator's side by the end of that story. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of feel the same way, actually. And doesn't that make you think, out of all the, the Troutons that could exist, why is it this one? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the other I'm going to nominate is The Invisible Enemy. Ah, oh, okay. And this is, again, more about the visuals. As a kid, you've got these wonderful spaceships and this wonderful space station with people wearing space clothes and doing space things with space equipment. And it was all really modern and exciting and futuristic. And it's what, as a kid, you want the future to look like. Mm. Now I kind of watch it and it just looks cheap and the story just makes no sense. And it's got the giant prawn in it. And it's <laughs> it's it's not very good. But as a kid, it fired my imagination. Yeah, no, fair enough. For me, in this uh, reverse segment... I'm going to go with a Davo story. And it's Warriors of the Deep. I I first saw this and thought it was great. I can't remember if I had seen any of the Pertwee stories with Silurians or Sea Devils. And maybe that's why I liked it. Because it was like, oh, I'm seeing these classic... I I knew they were classic monsters because I'd read reference books and stuff on Doctor Who and see pictures of them. It might have been the first story I actually saw them in. And I can remember the Andrew Skilleter, I think it was Andrew Skilleter, who did some really nice artwork of the Sea yes, Devils in yes. the in the uh, samurai-type gear, which maybe doesn't look so great on screen, but in his images, they look 
awesome. I think that's such a cool concept to be wearing samurai armor when you're a sea devil. It's just great. Even now I'm excited by it. I, I had that poster. Did you? Yeah, there you go. And as a kid, I thought this was great. As an adult, and look, maybe it's from hearing <laughs> a dozen or two dozen podcasts slagging it off. I'm like, oh yeah, worries of the deep. That's not so good, is it? It's certainly not one of my favorite Davison stories by a long shot now. Yeah, I would agree with you that I loved it as a kid. Again, that the, the, the sea base there looks like what a kid wants the future to look like. Yeah. And it has got these classic monsters and there's a lot of action going on and it keeps you excited. I, I still have a quite a fond regard for the Warriors of the Deep, but you're right, as an adult, you do see the flaws. You do. And, and when you listen to either podcasts or even the commentary or, or interviews about it and someone makes a point like, a simple point, like they should have just turned the lighting down and it would look so much better. You think, oh, yeah, actually, <laughs> you know, and it just brings the whole mood down. You're like, oh, yeah, this could be better in so many simple ways. Yeah, I, I've always pushed back on that thing about turning the lights down because to me, a future schmick frontline military base would be shiny and exciting and, and and look like that. You know, this is this is their frontline defense. This isn't a long forgotten neglected station like Resurrection of the Daleks. But once you've seen, for example, on the making of on the DVD, where they show you where the paint for the murka comes off on Janet Fielding's leg, <laughs> you can't unsee that. And so from now on, you're going, oh my God, that's right. The murka was being so late in construction that the paint was still drying when they were filming it here. And yet, yet, yes, the whole, oh, look, it's hexachromite gas. That can destroy reptiles and marine creatures. I wonder if we'll be using that later in this story about reptiles and marine creatures. <laughs> you do see that as an adult. Oh, yeah, you do. But just on the lighting thing, I mean, the base is under attack. I mean, I'd love to see that lighting come down or maybe some, like, red lighting. You know, when a, when a ship comes under attack in a movie, you know, they go to that really moody red lighting. I would have loved that. Well, they do do that during the missile runs, don't they? So maybe 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 we that maybe we can split the difference. Maybe you're right. Once they do go under attack, they can go to red alert and put it down. I'll accept that compromise, Rob. Good idea. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we put a uh, a lid on our uh, feature for this episode? I, I think we should, but let's just finish up by repeating what we said at the start. For a show that is meant to be and is sometimes derisively said to be a kids' show. We've nominated a lot of stories that you need to be an adult to really appreciate. Very true. And uh, I guess that's the good thing about growing up. True, but there's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. <laughs> Touche. Do we have any letters this week, Rob? We do. We have the second half of Jim Hall's epic letter. So uh, I might read that. Please. Jim continues. While earlier rhapsodizing over the bleak majesty of season 18's Winter Garden, a quick word about the comic strip that accompanied this era in DWM. And over in New Zealand, I think Paul Schoons has just jumped uh, up. Uh, his ears <laughs> are perked up. Interestingly, as soon as Dave Gibbons drew the Doctor in his burgundy threads, the goofball fun of Sontarans versus Kung Fu monks was washed away by a steady drizzle of amazingly downbeat tales. A desolate beach with the mythical Prometheus bound to a rock. A gung-ho military man inadvertently triggering a peaceful race's slow extinction. Plucky survivors living in hope following the collapse of civilization who escaped subway cannibals but almost certainly not their own destiny this was suddenly a world away from beep the meep and barabara blood bugs 
Steve Moore, Steve Parkhouse, and of course Dave Gibbons produced a fantastic run of glum vignettes with the previously wisecracking Doctor now largely pondering what, if anything, he'd achieved. The final fourth Doctor story, The Neutron Knights, effortlessly succeeds with its myths as echoes from the future theme, where Underworld and Battlefield buckled embarrassingly, and not just due to the limitless budget available to a comic strip, its elegaic tone and ambiguous resolution seemed the ideal way to leave this most assured and flippant of Doctors, accepting that he's here been reduced to a bewildered bystander. And unlike the TV series, there was even better to come. Anyway, rather like Tom Baker, I've outstayed my welcome here, so I'll get out of the way. Many thanks for the podcast. Always a great listen, so I trust you don't succumb to entropy yourselves anytime soon. Happy times and places from Jim Hall. Well, thank you very much, Jim. There's a lot of thoughts in there. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's awesome. Um, I, I am not as familiar with the comic strip as I should be. There are some of the classic strips I know well. There's a whole run of strips from around 86, 87, 88. 89 even that i'm quite um familiar with too but there are other ones that i really should go back and and get into and and just being reminded here that you know much like the tv series the tom baker strips do sort of go a bit more downbeat i should probably pick those up i'd probably quite like them i was thinking exactly the same thing i'm not familiar with these but yeah i might have to go seek these out now Mm, excellent so i think that's all we have to cover but we've got a few notes for the future We do. Of course, we'll be back in September on the 24th, to be precise, always the final Sunday of the month, with our new Who's Beryl Reed episode. So if you have thoughts on, you know, who a a good Beryl Reed replacement is or has been in New Who, for better or worse, let us know. Twitter, Facebook, email, you know the drill by now. Yeah, tell us the good ones, tell us the not so good ones, and just a sentence or two on why. Yes, please. It always helps, so we don't have to guess. But because we've got an absence of Doctor Who for a little while and we like to keep busy here, we've got something new coming out next month as well haven't we rob we certainly do we're going to be launching what we call our alternate galaxies series Mm. which is where we're going to look at other shows within the genre that we are fans of and we're going to talk about what they are why we like them but also why if you're a doctor who fan you might like them too yes there's a lot of good sci-fi slash fantasy slash horror type tv series that have come uh, and gone sadly over the years and look some of them you may know and you might just like to hear our thoughts on you know one or the other but there are others where you might have thought all along i should really get into that show i wonder if it's worth it and we'll get around to many of them and and talk about them yeah so if you're familiar with the show then hopefully you'll enjoy the chat and agree with us or disagree with us if you haven't as i say we'll talk about why as a doctor who fan you might like it but We're also going to try and give you some tips about where you might want to dip in or a good episode to try out to see if you like it or how long to stick with the series before you give up with it if it's not working for you. Indeed. And this idea came from you, Dave, I think, because we've noticed that in so many episodes, you and I often reference back to certain programs. And I think, can we reveal what our first show is going to be on? Let's do it. Okay. So our first one, drum roll, please. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm looking forward to this. I think we've got a lot we can talk about here because there are quite a few links back to Doctor Who that we can you know, really nut out. Oh, links back to Doctor Who, some uh, some recent news that we should probably touch on when it comes to talking about um, Buffy and Joss Whedon in particular. Yeah, there's a lot to get through. But just a series that we can chat about our love for and that's what's fun. 
Absolutely. And also, talking about chatting, Random Fandom, which is the podcast from Jim Cameron and Bob Fleming. First episode is out there on our feed at present. That is a show where they answer your questions about Doctor Who. They can be serious, they can be fun, you might want to know their view on something or other. Let them know. Have a listen to that episode, you'll find out how to get in touch with them. They would love to hear from you and to answer your questions. That's a monthly show they'll be doing from now on. Yes, do send in your questions to them because they are one of our companions on this feed. Absolutely. Dave, I think that's it for the month of August. I think it is. We've covered a fair bit, haven't we? We certainly have. That was, a, that was a really fun and enjoyable topic tonight. And thank you so much to all of you for writing in, letting us know your thoughts. Like I say, we, we stopped asking for thoughts because we thought oh, we, we could do a two or three hour show if we, if we keep getting answers. So, uh, yeah, no, that was really, really great. I hope you enjoyed it. So hopefully we'll get as many thoughts about next time. But until then... I've been Rob. I've been Dave. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. Hayden Gribble at Gribbler12, our good mate from... The Diddly Dumb Podcast. I almost said prompt. <laughs> I'll start again.